And I'm hoping to encourage you from the word of God this morning from Matthew chapter 9. Matthew's gospel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the subject of unmixed devotion to Christ. Not being commingled, not being torn apart inside by clinging to Christ in one hand and fill in the blank of what you hold on in your heart, hold on to in your hearts in the other hand. Um, that act will literally rip you apart inside where you are saying in one breath, I'm wholly devoted to Jesus. And then I am at the same time devoted to something else. The title of the message is you can't have it both ways and you can't. There's a, an interesting diagnostic that Jesus sort of shares in this text and this experience that we're going to find um, from Matthew's gospel verses, nine, uh, verses 14 through 17. I do want to say this, uh, as we go through this diagnostic, I want you to look at this as if it's a spiritual MRI. This is a text and a story that's familiar, but it's potent if you'll do some heart examining. Anytime someone is undergoing an MRI, and I have a, a family member that just had one, I don't think it's anything dangerous per se, but whenever you have a family member undergo an MRI or get you know, sent to that um, procedure, it's serious because you're finding something out that you can't see on the surface. You're finding something out about a person on the inside in um, you know, the three-dimensional picture that comes back that's different than just a bone x-ray or different than just external symptoms. You're finding out something that is definitive and clear. And this is what the text needs to do to us this morning to make things definitive and clear in terms of where we are. Let me just ask a few questions. Are you devoted to Jesus and money? Are you devoted to Jesus Power and influence. Are you devoted to Jesus and performance? Jesus and, write in my notes, Jesus and stuff, fill in the blank. Um, Jesus and health, Jesus and self-esteem, Jesus and intelligence, Jesus and friendship, Jesus and philosophies, Jesus and fun, Jesus and family, Jesus and job security, Jesus and science, Jesus and politics, Pregnant pause. Jesus in fame, Jesus in popularity, Jesus in your personality, Jesus in sports, Jesus in your safety, Jesus in well-being, Jesus in individuality, Jesus in love, Jesus in sex, Jesus in mystical experiences, Jesus in the world. Or let's take it a level deeper. Jesus and any one of these other categories that you want for someone else that you love. It's just a way to take it a little deeper. A lot of times we'll mask it and say, I love Jesus and my desire for someone else to have something is just selflessness. But anytime you covet anything in your heart alongside of Jesus and you commingle your devotion, it will ultimately create a chemical reaction inside to you that will start to rip you apart. It will mess you up. Think of uh, the Olympic um, competitions where people are on the rings. You see people do things on the rings during that time. And one of the famous things that people do are iron crosses where they're holding one ring in one hand, a ring in another. It's a picture of holding on to two things at the same time. And eventually that tension mounts at a level where something's got to give way, got to end that routine or something will come apart. 
Idols split people into two people, right? They split you in half. Holding on to religion and holding on to relationship is what we're talking about. Religion I'm defining here not in the positive way as James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion is taking care of orphans and widows. That's the pure heart. That's true religion. That's a true heart for God, a true heart ministry. This is the false religion of external performance, external obedience. It's the idea of being self-identified in terms of your own worth and value for what you're trying to achieve for God. That's the false religion always, all the way back in Satan, um, Satan's temptation to Eve. I would say even back to Satan's original sin of pride. He was trying to make himself like God. That's false religion. That's every other religion but Christ, the true religion of following him. What we're talking here is holding on to something that's satanic. Eve, has God withheld something from you? You need to take it. You need to just do it. Just go outside of God and go for yourself. Hanging on to those kinds of things while you're trying to claim that you're hanging on to Christ will tear you apart. It's mixing religion with relationships. Second Corinthians 11, three, but I am afraid. This is Paul to the church at Corinth. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what we need. Without a pure, simple devotion to Christ, there is a gas leak in your heart. It's lethal. It's toxic. If left to itself, It's like something that leads people to a death sleep where they're lying on their couch and wake up dead. Using religion as an external workspace system is something that people do. They believe it's noble. They think it's harmless. They think it is Christianity plus. And that's all a satanic lie. Remember Judas Iscariot and you think of Judas as someone in, in light of his whole story. You know, he sold Jesus out, and so it's hard for us not to see him in our mind's eye with little horns sticking out of his head, right? A little scary, ratty-looking man that, you know, on the outside, Jesus should have seen coming, um, you know, far away as uh, lethal to his, uh, his own life. And yet Judas Iscariot was someone that Jesus chose in an all-night prayer session as he, as he prayed through who he would affirm to be his apostles. He was part of the intimate 12. He was part of someone who sat with Jesus at his feet, learned from his teaching, was sent out with the 70, performed miracles, exercised demons. He was someone that Jesus washed his feet in the upper room. Uh, Judas Iscariot was entrusted the treasury. And you say, well, you know, the money guy's always bad. He's always a scandal waiting to happen. But that's because we've heard the story from the end looking backwards. But if you look at it from the front side going the other way, Judas was the one who was set apart with that entrustment over the money because he on the outside had the integrity commensurate with that kind of trust. And Judas broke trust. He was divided in his own heart and ultimately was in conflict with his own sin, even though he was the son of perdition. Satan came in and inhabited his own heart. Judas Iscariot, when he sold Jesus out and got the 30 pieces of silver for guilt, threw it at the temple, you know, temple stage or whatever and said, I'm undone and ultimately hanged himself because of guilt, because he was ripped apart inside. So what I'm trying to do is warn you this morning, both unbelievers who might be out there streaming in or listening by radio and believers here in the house of God, that we do not 
Whether we're outside of the kingdom or inside of the kingdom, we do not have the privilege of having an undivided heart. I mean, a divided heart. We are called to have an undivided heart, an unmixed devotion to Christ. That's how you grow. That's where there's joy, and we're going to find this in our text before us. It's, uh, if you're taking notes, it's settling for nothing less than unmixed devotion for Christ. Unmixed devotion to Christ. And point one, settling for less than unmixed devotion is illogical. It's illogical. The setting here is one where you have Jesus who is ministering to his disciples. He's calling people to come to him. He's called Matthew to get up from his tax collecting scandal and scheme. We learned last week, come and follow me. And Matthew does everything, lifts up off the table, lifts up out of the hypocrisy of his Ponzi scheme, comes clean and follows Jesus. And he's so excited with this new conversion that he invites the the other buddies of his, the tax collectors and, and the sinners, he's opened the door. Hey, come on, come on. Jesus is not just ministering to the religious people. He's not just re- uh, ministering to the Bible college or the Bible students. He's ministering to all of us. Come to sit at his feet and recline at table as, as uh, the immediate context would say. Recline at table. Have fellowship with Jesus Christ like I have. Verse 10 talks about that. And so that kicked up some dust here where the Pharisees had attacked um, Jesus by going to the disciples. They're wanting to be divisive and they're going to the disciples who were there, by the way, at the house. They're there with Jesus, but they're going, disciples, who's this Jesus guy? What's he trying to do? Um, Co-mingling with these tax gatherers. He's tainted. He's not doing good religion here by, by intermixing with them, is he? This is bad religion, not good religion. What's happening? And so that was the first attack. And then we see here a second question that's raised against Jesus' ministry. And that begins in verse 14. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, stop there. So you have the disciples of John. This is a new category introduced to this scenario. We have Matthew, we have tax collectors, we have sinners, we have Pharisees who are trying to divide the disciples from Jesus and saying, what are you doing having a party like this? Now you have the disciples of John who are showing up, the disciples of John the baptizer. Okay, John the Baptist, who is set apart as a New Testament prophet of God, the forerunner of Christ out in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, a radical, calling people out of traditionalism, calling them out of um, external Judaism, come out in the wilderness as a symbol of true repentance from the heart, be baptized and believe. Those are the disciples of John. Well, these disciples of John have been um, kind of on the fence a little bit with Jesus, it looks like. They could be the Essene cult, which was a spinoff from the true disciples of John who were um, into asceticism, self-deprivation, but the text doesn't really say that with clarity. These are the disciples of John. John's been imprisoned. Um, they're discouraged. Our first leader is there. He, they, John pointed us to Jesus Christ, but now we're a little bit confused because Jesus, you're having a party with the tax collectors and sinners 
And we were into fasting and prayer mode. And so why the party? What's going on? Spurgeon says that the disciples of John were coming as friends, coming as uh, those who were just trying to be honest about the situation. They were coming face to face with Jesus differently than the Pharisees who were trying to divide disciples from Jesus. They're going straight to Jesus and they're saying, why do you and your disciples not fast? Why don't you do what the Pharisees do? They fast. They're observing at least the Day of Atonement still in the public fast, and we have our fasting practices. Why aren't you doing that? You're having a party with these tax collectors, and, and uh, we don't think that's appropriate. This is kind of a good-natured double team that's going on. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm different than the Pharisees, and his response, he's also saying, I'm different than John's disciples, um, if they're acting like Pharisees at this point. Um, Mosaic law, it required fasting once a year, day of atonement, Leviticus 16, 29. There were national fasts. These were corporate sacrificial times of offering sacrifices and fasting. It was appropriate. The history of the nation called for times of fasting during a Babylonian captivity. If you think of Daniel's call to the fast at the end of the 70 year period of the Babylonian captivity that was predicted, he opened the scroll, saw it and said, whoa, we're at the end of that 70 year period, time to call a fast. And they put sackcloths and ashes over their heads and they went without food to rely on the Lord and to pray in this moment that was providentially opening before their eyes. That's appropriate. But the Pharisees took what was appropriate and they installed a work ethic that was um, part of a legalistic tradition. It was fasting twice a week. My notes, I'm not sure where I got it, but I have here that Monday and Thursday they would fast. I don't know if I was being cute at that point or whatever, but perhaps in their tradition, it was Monday and Thursday that they would call a fast so that they knew by obeying their work ethic, they would be right with God. You say, how could they? How could they do something like this? Well, Jesus exposed it on a deep level with a parable where it was the the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both went to temple and the Pharisee looked down at the tax collector and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, Luke 18, verse 11, verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the ultimate example of religion versus relationship. You say religion's not dangerous. Come on. It's not dangerous. Well, anytime you're putting security, not only your eternal security, but your immediate security in the Lord, in the hands of religion, you've left the Lord. It's not that you can lose your salvation, but you're losing your fellowship as a believer. True Christianity is Christ. It's knowing him. It's personal relationship. And we, we allow things into our hearts that sacrifices and jeopardizes our communion and fellowship with the Lord all the time if we're honest with ourselves. They built a schedule to be right with God. They were acting as those who are into asceticism, saying we are more spiritual because we're depriving ourselves from things. On a practical modern level, we do it by comparing ourselves to other people. 
People are like modern day Pharisees in our lives, right? Where we go, man, if I could be as spiritual as that person, then I would be right with God. If I could just do the things that that person does, read enough theology, read enough books, study the Bible as well as that person studies the Bible. If I can know the original languages of Greek and Hebrew in the Bible, then I'll be spiritual. Then I will be right with God. If I can have enough family devotions, then my kids will insured, um, be insured salvation and that will make me a better off Christian. What about modern day social media? where you see these incredible pictures. It's amazing. People who can post on Facebook have such better lives than everybody else. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, they really do. They're, people who post on Instagram and Facebook are always smiling. They're always together. The kids always have perfect haircuts. They have uh, just perfect lives that are going on. The day is always um, a bright and sunshiny day on Facebook or whatever. And if you really believe that, it's so discouraging. But that discouragement is fostered out of the designs in your own heart where you're going, if I could just be like that person, then I would be okay. That's commingling your relationship with the Lord with a false religion to do that. Comparing your work ethic, your habits, your family, your appetites will ultimately mess you up. And if you really believe that about people and you get close enough to them, then you might crash in another way where they let you down at such a level where you see what's really happening on the inside of a person's heart. And all of those disillusionments are come crashing down and you go, oh, they're sinners just like me. Can't make a person into an idol. I've had mentors who um, allowed me ultimately to become like colleagues to them and get close enough to them where I could see that they're just like me and I'm just like them. And um, there's joy in that different than idolizing people. So relationship is better than religion, but also joy is better than religion. Joy is better than religion. Look at the first part of verse 15. Jesus said, can the wedding guests, this is more logic here, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Here's logic here. It's a pharisaical tradition that Jesus is using as an example to debunk the John's disciples alliance with the Pharisees. Like you're talking about my fasting habits or lack thereof. And so what I'll do is, you said your alliance, your double team is with the Pharisees. Let's take a Pharisaical tradition of how they conducted weddings. And let me just show you how inappropriate it would be for the disciples to be fasting right now. Because for the true disciples of Jesus to be with me is like a wedding banquet. It's like the after party. It's, it's a picture and foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the lamb on earth. That's what's happening. And so how appropriate is it to be at the marriage supper of the lamb and Jesus is saying, pass the potatoes and you're going, you know, I'm not going to take any. It's fine. I'm on a diet here right now and I'm not really going to eat. There's a certain kind of food that's not working for me. Jesus is going, no, 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 no. You're at a banquet right now with me. It would be inappropriate. It would be wrong. It would be, yea, verily offensive to not eat and enjoy food with, uh, with this moment. Uh, the tradition of uh, weddings back then, then was that it was a week-long process where the wedding guests um, would act, actually act as footmen for the groom. 
and they had a responsibility to escort the bride to her home, her new home and her new life that was going to be put together with the groom. And so what they would do is as groomsmen, as uh, these wedding guests, they would set the table for the house to be perfect, to set them up for success in their new marriage. And so they were very, very um, interconnected in friendship. This was a unique friend group that would happen as a celebration around a wedding of two people. That's what Jesus is bringing up. If you've ever participated in a wedding as a best man or a maid of honor or a groomsman or a bridesmaid, you know how special that is in terms of your connection to the bride and groom. You know that the party means that we're going to have food and that somehow joy and happiness is connecting with eating and eating is, hap- is connected with the joy of, uh, of the relationship. So in that moment to go, you know what? I'm just not going to eat. You know, I'll just pass on the cake or I'll pass on this and this and, and I won't participate. That's really being a joy killer and a downer. And so Jesus is exposing that here. He's going in verse 15. Can the wedding guest mourn? Are they going to be sad as long as the bridegroom is with them? The obvious answer is no way. No way. Now, am I saying by this that there's no discipline in the Christian life? Obviously not. Um, Jerry Bridges in his book, it's a great book called The Disciplines of Grace, is where he's really tying together his earlier work, I think he wrote in the 70s, called The Pursuit of Holiness. Um, That's a classic work. And then there was a, a work called Transforming Grace. And that was such a sort of watershed counterbalance to the discipline side that we're also trusting the grace of the gospel to motivate us to do the discipline. He put it all together in a book called The Disciplines of Grace that I read during seminary. And the word picture is one of uh, two planes with two wings. You have to have work out your salvation with fear and trembling, get in the gym, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, pray, read the Bible, pursue God. But With that discipline, you have to have devotion, two wings that make the plane fly. The devotion is I'm preaching the gospel to myself every day. Um, my, My sin is never so bad that I am out of the reach of God's grace, but I'm never so good that I'm out of the need for God's grace. These are sort of power statements from that book that that. Infuse your heart and, you know, fill your sails with the wind of the gospel to say, I need to get to the place where I want to pray. I want to fast. I want to read. I want to study because I'm starting with my heart and my relationship with the Lord. Point two, settling for less than unmixed devotion will not survive suffering. Jesus is being real life here in the second half of verse 15. That's where I'm picking up point two. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Christ was going to the cross. He was going to the cross. This is a early foreshadowing or prediction that Jesus was gonna be taken. And the language here is abrupt. Jesus was gonna be taken abruptly from them. And we know that to be true. Taken away by Roman guards. Did the disciples understand this? We have no idea. Perhaps not at this point, but they were being told that the bridegroom will be taken away. At that time, there would be an appropriateness for them to fast. Then they will fast. This was a predicted time. It was undetermined, but there will be a time of sadness. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 4 is where Solomon says there's a time for everything. And at one point he says, there's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Um, It's been said that 
We should fast in the Christian life when life gets hard enough for us to lose our appetite. I think that's true. It is a spiritual discipline that's given to us. It's private. It's personal. It's a personal decision. It's never for show. It's never to um, kind of raise awareness of your own spirituality or lack thereof. It's always out of a dependence upon the Lord. It's usually found in a context of suffering, just like in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 1.12, 1 Kings 21.27, Nehemiah 1.4, Esther 4.3, Isaiah 62.5. These were all public corporate calls to fasting, and they were, they were uniquely tied to events like captivities, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity, Nehemiah going back to, to uh, reestablish leadership in Israel where the walls were going to be rebuilt there again and the temple would be rebuilt. He called a fast. Fasting is event-oriented, but this also translates into our own lives. You, you find out rough news, difficulty. You're in a dire situation and you might say, I'm going to deprive myself of something physical so I can, can really go before the throne of grace and do business with the Lord. Well, Jesus gives a qualification for that in Matthew chapter 6. We've already learned of it um, in our study in Matthew. Verse 16, when you fast, you not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, fasting to be seen by others. People were literally using this on the street corners as a, as a sideshow to get money. Truly, they've had their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. I would say even when people would ask you about fasting or not, whether you're doing it or not, it should be a very private matter. You should be very protective not to um, try to put anyone in the temptation to try to be like you, to be more spiritual. They need to look at the scripture and, and figure it out in their own conscience. A.W. Pink says, private fasting should come from within, not imposed from without. It should be spontaneous, a result of being under great stress. Of spirit. One person said, Fasting is not designed to put righteous desires into you, but a means to express urgent desires that already exist. Think of Jesus, his 40 days of fasting, as preparation to go into battle with Satan and to go into his ministry for the next three years and ultimately to the cross. Fasting took place post-resurrection. It is a New Testament discipline. The early church in Acts 13, 1 through 3, when they selected Paul and Barnabas, they held a fast and they prayed to select, anoint, or lay hands on and send. They fasted. They fasted. But the point in all of these things is to have an unmixed devotion to Christ, even in the midst of trials. Uh, not only would Christ be taken, Christ was going to the cross, but there's a kind of an indirect promise here that disciples of Christ will have hardship. When Christ is taken, there is hardship. Now, can Christ ever be taken from us? No. But is, is it found in the experience of the psalmist that he feels like God is gone sometimes? Yes. Does it feel like God is far away sometimes? From our own hearts, yes. True devotion is crying out like the psalmist and saying, where are you, Lord? I need you, Lord. I need to know you're near to me. 
I know you're near to me because you promised to be near to me. You'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. You're with me always, even unto the end of the age. I'm reestablishing that. I stand in grace. Nothing can separate me from your love. I know you're here. I know you're here. It just doesn't feel like you're here right now. That's a true unmixed devotion that cries out to the Lord through the crisis. Now, if within that cry, that heart cry, in that desperate moment, you're hanging on to Jesus and anything else, you'll fall apart. You'll come apart. That's why you feel that way. Mixed, commingled, unclear. James 1 says, when you face various trials, consider it all joy. When it happens, consider it joy. What is the joy there? The joy is the deep, resounding confidence that God has got you right in the center of his will under the crushing blows of hard circumstances. I know I'm supposed to be here. I know you're refining me. I know you're changing me. I know you're using this to transform me and make me more like Jesus. You're shoring up what's lacking in my life so I can be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. That's James 1, 1 through 4. Ask for wisdom to get through it. The wisdom, again, is that unmixed, undistorted, True focus on the Lord Jesus Christ where you say, I'm trusting you and I'm letting go of everything else. Instead of holding the two rings like this, right? Let's hold the one ring like this and go, Jesus, you're all I need. You're all I need. It's true. Listen to this. If you're down here, if your life down here is falling apart, then looking for help from down here will make you wish things were better down here which will bring you down. We need the Lord. You say things like this. Well, how does this practically work out? Listen to these ideas. This is a version of practicing false religion. Well, my life has just been turned upside down. I'm in an unexpected trial. It's tragic. I'm going to fast and pray, Lord. But I also want to request that you would change out our president right now because that would also help me and make me a little bit happier as I go through this devastating trial. Lord, help me. I'm devoted to you, but I'm also devoted to my own politics. You might pray something like this. Lord, help me to grow through this trial, but please soften my workload at the office right now. If you do that, then I'll be okay. It's mixing things up in your heart. If you just let my life down here make it a little bit more easy, I will be able to trust you. Now, let's make it religious. Mixing religion with trusting Jesus would be like saying something like this. God, I've been faithfully attending and giving to church these many years, and you would still allow something like this to happen to me? Why would you do that? How could you? I'm trusting you, but how could you? That's mixing religion and relationship. Or you say, I'm going through this tragedy, so now I'm going to up my personal game. I'm going to read the Bible more, pray more, trust more, give more, show up, sign up, do something, and then I know you'll see me through. All of this stuff is wrong. One person from the first hour came up and said, this all seems to tie really uniquely to marriage and marital health. thought that was interesting. And I was saying, yeah, it's true. The best marriages are when... The leader in the home has an unmixed devotion to Christ. Your focus is on the Lord. 
Instead of trying to fix the marriage, even as the, the wife to the husband or the husband to the wife, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't try to fix the marriage. Fixate on Jesus. Love the Lord Jesus. Grow in Jesus and watch the fruit of that wholesale devotion in the Lord transform your marriage. It's a byproduct. I'm not saying there aren't things to fix and figure out. But most people who are unhappy in church or unhappy in marriage are trying to fix themselves. Instead, fixate on the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can just use a play on words. Fixate on him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Wholly devoted by letting go of what consumes you otherwise and putting your faith in the Lord. It's a great song that I lived on during my college years. It's called, He's All You Need. Listen to these words. When you're alone, your heart is torn. He's all you need. When you're confused, your soul is bruised. He's all you need. He's the rock of your soul. He's the anchor that holds through your desperate time. When your way is unsure, his love will endure a peace you will find. Through all your years, the joy, the tears, he's all you need. He's our sufficiency. He's everything that we need. But when you are split in your heart, it's a dangerous condition to be in. So dangerous that Jesus uses very, very clear, simple, almost elementary-like analogies to explain what he means. And I want to open them up. They're verses 16 and 17. Begin with the first analogy. This is the analogy of unshrunk cloth. It's putting a piece of unshrunk cloth on on an old garment, trying to attach those two things to make it work. How do you patch the hole? You put something new with something old and you, you tack it together. That's going to work really well. All right, listen to verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. This is point three. It's settling for less than unmixed devotion destroys the soul. The ripping here is the picture of being ripped up inside. Old religion will rip apart new life. It's... A new patch that's sewn onto an old garment. And then the second analogy is new wine poured into old wineskins. The idea is that practicing religion is never compatible with trying to practice your relationship with Christ. If you do that, you'll lose everything. Neither the old garment or the old wine, and this is very important to unlock what these analogies mean. The old garment or the, neither the old wine are the old covenant law themselves. The old garment and the old wine are not the old covenant law. Now the law, 2 Corinthians and other places, speak to death. It's something that kills. What is the law killing? Does that make the law bad? Well, the law kills and crushes self-righteousness. The law undoes people. The law undid Paul. Remember his, his testimony in Romans chapter 7 where he said, I, I didn't even know my sin until I saw basically the Ten Commandment, tenth commandment, which was coveting. Thou shalt not covet. And covetousness undid me. I was undone at that point. 
He realized that he wasn't the righteous Pharisee that he thought he was, all put together with all his law keeping. The law ultimately got to him and crushed him. And the law is called the tutor that drives us to Christ. In other words, it, in other words, it undresses our own self-righteousness where all that we have left is our own sin that we need to repent of, confess, and seek the Lord for. The law from the Old Testament's vantage point was that which would point a crushed sinner to the coming Messiah. The law was something that was to be shared according to Deuteronomy 6, all the time in the households of faith. To love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor yourself. This is the law of God. The law of God is what displayed the full attributes of God and his holiness and goodness and his wrath and his judgment to show people their sins so they would come to Christ. The ceremonial law was to point to the ultimate sacrifice. All of the lambs slaughtered, slaughtered were to point to the ultimate lamb once for all for the salvation of our own sins. Jesus on the road to Emmaus told the two that were there that all of the law and the prophets pointing to him. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but what? To fulfill it. He's the point of it. So we love the law of God. We understand that that's the law of God. This is not what Jesus is talking about in terms of trying to reform something. That's the old way and this is the new way. What Jesus is saying here is that the law of the Old Testament had been distorted. It had been taken by the Judaizers and the Pharisees and built into a a works-based form of self-righteousness. That's what needs to pass away. That's the old garment. That's the old wine. It's self-righteous religious traditions. It's religious systems, misrepresentations of the law, distortions of its original intent. The patch or the unshrunk cloth pictures the gospel. It pictures um, what the old garment is not. It's the opposite of traditions and self-righteousness. So sewing a piece of new crisp cloth onto an old, worn out, useless garment will not work because when the new cloth shrinks with the old because it's commingled and really not the gospel anymore, it's gonna make a bigger rip than was there before. And you know this to be true. Half Christians are not Christians at all. People who halfway believe the gospel are worse off than oftentimes people who have the integrity to say, I'm a wholesale rejecter of Christ. People who who play the game, they make it worse for themselves. People who try to prop themselves up with some grace, but some legalism, and they mix that together are falling apart inside. What is the picture here? Well, let's modernize this for um, a moment. When things get wet, especially back then, but even modern day, I, if I wash and dry my pants, they shrink all up. You know, they, they, it says on the label it won't shrink, but I don't believe them anymore. It just doesn't work. There's too much synthetic stuff. Well, back then things would shrink and, uh, you know, patches would fall off and the rip would be bigger. I, I know this. Um, my kids growing up, here in Alaska had a lot of hand-me-downs. A lot of jeans were given to our kids from the family of God and the household of God. Whole trash bags full of clothes and, and things would show up to our house and we used all of it. We've used all of it. Our kids are now getting older, but four boys, especially growing up in Alaska, I mean, they had holes in their shoes on the way to school. We'd wrap it up with duct tape and send them off to school here. 
And they'll be able to tell their kids and grandkids that they walked uphill both ways in the snow. I mean, that's for sure. And that's a legit thing to say. But with jeans, with jeans, they would wear the holes in the knees all the time. And my wife would make every effort to buy the little tough skin patches, those big crisp patches, and that'll work. And you sew it on the inside or stick it on the outside. You iron it, you stitch it, you throw it in the wash. And about two wears later, that thing's peeling off and going away and it's not working out. That's the picture here. This is what happens. It's a worse tear that is made. It's worse when it's commingled. Well, Spurgeon said it this way. He said, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples were trying to emulate the Pharisees and make common cause to save the old church. Jesus would have nothing to do with this project. He would have a new church for his new doctrine and for his new spirit. Compromises are often proposed and we have good people like John's disciples who would have us conform to what they think good things are being established, but we had better act consistently and begin de novo or with the new. And then he goes on in this quote, I can't resist it, but to read this because it's, you know, hundred years old, but this is what Spurgeon was talking about. It's what we're talking about today. Let the scientific doubters go. Let the scientific doubters go, for faith is not of their mind. She, meaning the scientist, she knows and can never be agnostic. He was calling out the scientists going, they know enough to know there really is a God deep down. Let us have done with doubts that make us fast and let us hold high festival while the bridegroom is still with us by his spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have reason to celebrate. We have the gospel We shouldn't intermix it with self-righteousness. Now, secondly, old religion will empty out new life. Verse 17, Jesus says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Stop there. This is the second analogy for new wine. And again, the old wineskins are self-righteousness and traditions. It was built out of the law, but it was a misconstrual of the law. And just to be fully Alaskan, we're going to talk about how a wineskin was made back then. This is really appetizing as we go into Sunday lunch. You would take a goat, you chop its head off. This is awesome. Oh, to be in Alaska, to be able to just say these things. If you're in a weirdo, you know, other state out there that you could get like, you know, dogged out for saying that. God bless them. But they would disembowel the animal, chop the head off, disembowel the animal, tie off the legs, and make a wineskin, right? And so then to purify the wine, you take two of those, and you're pouring the wine into one and then to the other, and the dregs are being filtered out through that process. And then you have wine that's healthy to drink. It's not dysentery. It's, It's healthy in that regard. In that time period, that was how they did it. But it would be a disaster to do something like I would do in that situation. I mean, I am that person. I'm just guilty as charged. I would have a wineskin and it would be old. And instead of going to the, throwing it away and getting a new one, I just burn things all the way to the ground. That's how we've always been. We, we, we just use things down to the nub. Just look at our cars. I hate to say it, it's true. It's how we roll. But it's just our mentality. So somebody has this wineskin, it's old, it's been tanned, it's, it's expanded. The elasticity is at capacity. It's like that old worn out baseball glove that's just been out in the yard for years and years and years. It's crackly and it's not even working anymore. The ball would go right through the pocket. 
That's this wineskin. And so the idea is that when you pour wine into that, either to its capacity where there's no more room for it to stretch, it's just going to crack and break, or the chemical reaction of the fermentation process blows a hole out the bottom of it, the wine goes onto the floor and you lose the wineskin. So if you do it this way, if you mix old with new, you're going to lose both. That's the point. If you mix old with new, if you're mixing Christ with with traditionalism, with Jesus plus anything else in your heart, it's going to blow everything apart inside. And you won't have Jesus, and you won't even have the comfort of false religion to try to um, patch up and band-aid yourself for the time being. You lose it all. You fall apart. It's similar to... And we haven't had this happen in a while, but, you know, the old adage, don't cry over spilled milk. We've got a lot of mouths to feed. And, you know, we go to Costco like everybody else and get the double-wrapped milk, right? That you have to basically use a, a knife to surgically, like, separate two milks and all of that. But if you're down to one milk or you're down to this much milk and suddenly somebody spills it and throws it on the ground and there's no cereal to be had, there's all kinds of sackcloth and mourning on a Saturday morning for something like that. It's all spilled out on the floor, but that's the picture. It's sad. It's sad. You've, you've lost your way. It's mixing Christ with anything else means that you lose both and leaves you empty. You know, for believers, we need to understand that we, we can digress and commingle something with Christ so easily. We should enjoy unmixed devotion. It was a few years ago, a handful of years ago now that I discovered, I had the spiritual awakening and discovery that I was not called to ever teach 11th grade Bible at the school. I went in for a semester and did that. That was a joke, but it's true. Anyway, I went in and taught Bible and enjoyed doing it at, at, a, at a level because I, it, there was a need. I filled a gap. I was there, but it was the end of the semester. And so I walked in there and I was in a bad mood. It was on a Monday It's my usual day off, but I'm teaching the class also. And I walk in there and the kids at the end of the semester have their heads, you know, draped over the desk and they're just, they're in the dark. They've cut the lights out. And I'm thinking, what is this? You know, we have Bible class. I'm getting geeked up here. I'm coming in to teach. And they're all zoned out. And I cut the lights on and it goes, me, it's buzzing. And there's this frenetic light and they're saying, "Eh, the lights are messed up. Let's just do it in the dark or something. And I'm like, no way. We're, lights are on. We are open for business. And I'm teaching the Bible, by golly. I'm after it, you know? And so this kid gets up and he begins to protest me. And he walks across the classroom and he flips the, and I'm, he's, he's flipping the lights off. And I'm like, no, no, you're not going to do that. And by the way, you lost your privilege to take role today, too, you know? And the whole class is, ooh, you know, not really. <laughs> But it turned into this little bit of a stare down where he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, you know, you know, cue the Clint Eastwood music in the background, you know, wah, wah, wah. what am I going to do? Am I going to send him to the principal's office or not? So I just stopped. I just stopped. Everything was wrong in my own heart. I walked out of the room, took a time out, said a prayer, came back in and said, hey, good morning. You know, the lights are down. Um, things aren't good. Let's just keep it on half light this morning. And I want to pray. And I kind of prayed away the tension and said, let's, let's begin our time in the word of God. And I'm going to talk through the difference between being in the flesh or in the spirit. And that was my class time. Now, I don't say that to pat myself on the back. It's actually a little bit exposing. Tell that story. However, what I'm saying is all of the Christian life is making a daily decision to say, 
Let's not pour new wine into an old wineskin today, right? Let's not sow the patch. Let's not go out and get the tough skin patch and try to patch up our life with a, an act of commingling Christ with anything else. Let's not do that today. Today, Let's give a whole devotion to the Lord. I'll end with uh, it's some lyrics from a hymn that John Newton wrote. Remember, John Newton was a slave trader, and uh, he was a, a bad man. He was a very bad man who repented and found amazing grace. And he wrote amazing grace, but this is a different hymn. It's his testimony. He says, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a cross in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. How can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me.